Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Gamerpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Carlton. Today, I have a very special guest with us. I have Michael Aguilar, who works at IT at Oklahoma University and has spent the past several years setting up their gaming and esports program. Hi there, Mike. Hello. Uh, it's, uh, so how are you doing out there in uh, Oklahoma today? Uh, it's a little chilly today, but it's nice and sunny and it'll get warmer. Um, and luckily, we've had a decently mild tornado season here in the heartland, but uh, you can never hold your breath. Oklahoma is definitely uh, dynamic in its weather. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we begin by you just begin by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah. So I've been working for the University of Oklahoma now for over six years, um, almost at seven here in the fall. For the last three and a half years, I have been developing the gaming and esports communities and cultures on campus. And we started this journey um, with a year of research uh, kicking off in fall 2016 and then bringing in and developing to the point now of the largest student organization on campus at now over 1,100 members and uh, looked at the approach of developing our infrastructure on the macro view of what we see in esports industry um, in general. So where I feel and I see a lot of other uh, higher education institutions approach this topic, they're approaching it purely as a recruitment tool from um, a standpoint of intercollegiate competition, whereas we approached it from community first, engagement both internal and external, um, going down heavy, heavy journalistic practicum opportunities, and then finally ramping up intercollegiate competition as a means to have that foundation in place to advocate for our own brand, um, tell our story, and uh, be able to provide some character versus just slapping an OU logo on, a, on the chest of our, our uh, competitors and calling it done. That is fantastic. Uh, quite a lot to unpack there. So you know, before we get to that, though, I ask every guest the same question I'm going to ask you as well. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being high, how weird are you, Mike? How weird am I? Yeah. Oh, you know, I would say I'd be a solid eight. Why is that? So one of the things that a lot of people don't realize uh, when they approach me is that, um, yeah, I have a master's degree. Yeah, I'm in IT. I'm also a photographer of 18 years, which is completely different than the typical analog or typical very logical thought process in IT, um, where it's more creative and free-flowing. Um, but yes, also gamer since 82 in the Atari 2600 is where I started my journey in the Apple IIe and have played on every console since as well as being an avid PC gamer now. But even on top of that, I was in the military for six years and I enlisted in three months before 9-11. So that definitely was crazy. And uh, then on top of that, worked in Oklahoma County and juvenile facility, which gave me a lot of inspiration on focusing on K through 12 and at-risk youth developments in this journey with esports. And then also worked for Apple uh, for three years as a, as a high-level technician. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I consider myself decently dynamic. Oh, and I was a mechanic in the military, so completely different skill set, <laughs> which is hilarious because as I was getting out, the two worlds were converging. We were using Windows-based PCs to run diagnostics on rocket launchers. So the two worlds were colliding for sure as I was exiting. So I consider myself decently dynamic. Um, and kind of a Swiss army knife where I at least have a firsthand experience with a lot of different topics, cultures, and so forth. I was actually, uh, my first memories, I uh, lived in Puerto Rico for a couple years, and I also lived in West Germany when the wall was still up in the 80s. Um, and so I, I, my earliest childhood memories um, were in international waters and, uh, or in international soil. And so I think it gave me a very unique perspective about inclusivity and um, understanding diversity. I wonder what that says when we consider someone who's worldly to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you kind of gave us a bit of your gaming background. This is the Gamerpreneur. Um, how did you end up, you know, starting this program with OU? Like, you, you, 
you just be playing one day and all of a sudden they, they came to you? No. So uh, our CIO of IT at the time had attended an Amazon summit and came back saying, what the heck is Twitch? And that was the kickoff. And I was kind of like, hold my G fuel and uh, <laughs> let me show you. And so for the next you know six to eight months, I just did R&D and shared articles and and energies at the time, uh, 2016, there was less than 30 to 20 universities in, in the US um, that had any kind of official endorsement elevation at the university presidential level. And now fast forwarding, we're over 200 across US and Canada. So that's what four years duration um, with a massive growth just in the higher education sector, never mind the pro sector, just the higher education sector. And one of the crazy things about collegiate development is that when we think about it, a lot of people automatically go down to, oh, well, they have the expertise because the infrastructure of athletics programs. Well, that may be the case for some of the smaller schools, Division Two, Three, Four, or Division Two and Three, and NAIA schools. But when we talk about the NCAA Power Five universities like OU, um, Ohio State, UCLA, uh, Rutgers, and things like this, the NCAA is—they're used to getting spoon-fed governance that they have to adhere to. So it's actually kind of inhibiting our growth potential in, in the in the Power Five universities because we're used to being governed like that. Whereas the small universities are used to being more innovative with governance of programs like this and starting from scratch, we are a little hand-tied um, in that regard because that doesn't exist in our world. And so we have to literally kind of re-engineer the culture and the thought processes of embracing something that is so far departure um, administratively from what we know, despite the similarities in how it operates. Okay, so you've essentially built this completely from the ground up. Like, did you involve the students or was this just like a one-man band? Well, okay, so that's, uh, it's definitely hybrid. So in the first year, um, it was mainly research and reaching out to other developers and uh, reaching out to other universities, as well as some in the pro sector as well, just to see what their needs were. Um, and then I coupled that with what the University of Oklahoma specifically offered in course curriculum and looked at what made sense. And so if we reverse engineer esports entertainment it's pretty much sports entertainment and some people may not appreciate that but when we're getting down to the meat and potatoes of this it's sports entertainment rebranded and rebirthed and the difference then is instead of it being physical or analog football as i call it now it's digital football but the rest of it can stay the same whether it's the venue operations to the marketing to the sponsorship opportunities and the execution and, and professionalism all that can stay the same so this means that there are organic tie-ins to academic curriculums on almost any higher, higher educational institution landscape, whether it's business degrees, communications degrees, uh, broadcast journalism degrees, journalism in general, professional writing, uh, legal compliance, um, social work is one of my favorites when we talk about programming for K through 12 and at-risk youth, um, education naturally with gamifying the classrooms. Here's another ways to do it. So there, there's so many organic tie-in opportunities on higher education landscapes that we built the infrastructure before I started to bring students in saying, this is who we're going to be, but now we have to personify it through the students that are going to execute it and that this speaks to. The beauty about esports is because the lack of, of official mainstream acceptance as a job role is that most of these um, students and most gamers in general do these skill sets already because they have to, to, to enjoy what they want to consume and create. But what they don't know is that they're absolutely marketable skill sets. And sure, we can reference, you know, really high tier influencers, streamers that um, are really successful, generate tons of revenue, sustain a way of life, and then some. But if we reverse engineer them, then you have speech in there. You have self-branding. You have business acumen. You have um, the ability to do customer service and soft skills and engage a community. And all of those things can be uh, taught groomed on top of the natural talent of having them. And that's all before 
or after being good in the game. Okay, that's that's wonderful. It raises a question. I say this somewhat facetiously, but you're saying that there's a future in the gaming industry beyond just picking up controller and playing. Yes, absolutely. So when we look at uh, ESPN, is ESPN a sports brand really, or is it a journalistic brand? It's and brand, yeah. it's a media brand. So that's that's broadcast journalism. That's all those things that just fit off. And I always reference a story as a means to help kind of bridge the gap because a lot of people look at esports and just think they write it off right off the bat. But the reality is it's already things that people enjoy and, uh, and consume already. It's just they're, they're put off by the fact that it's a video game despite the business models kind of being very similar. But I reference Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, um, because he's fresh in a lot of minds still, even with the COVID changes. And would we have known who Kobe Bryant was if he wasn't interviewed, if he wasn't highlighted, if he wasn't if his mat games weren't broadcast and that's the same for anything. If you don't have awareness in it, are people going to even know it exists. So one of the things that I always start um, my own conversations to different administrations or other people that are completely uninitiated is gaming and esports are not the same thing. Gaming is like playing a pickup game of basketball with your friends at a local court. Esports is the NBA finals with the venue operations, businesses, partners, partnerships, strategic developments on the team of uh, fitness, wellness, all those components still exist in esports and the infrastructure development to bring it to the highest tier. So that means that a roster for, for, for a college uh, or for a university in Overwatch caps around nine or 12 students. Well, I have a lot more students than nine or 12. And so that means I need my own versions or my own uh, sportscasters or shoutcasters. I need my own production team. I need my own event coverage uh, personnel or media and staff. And then I need people to also push that through marketing and social media. Well, these are all skill sets that translate in the most common of senses. They're just applied to the specific industry. So yes, being a fan of these things is, is really more important to me and in the context of business strategic development than being really good at the game. Okay. Can I ask a question about the setup of the program itself? So sure. being in IT, it, I would imagine it's fairly easy for you to figure out what equipment was needed and facilities mm -hmm. and all that. However, the human capital, how hard or easy was it to be able to find the, the, the people who are able to run this, the coaches, all that? So I think one of my favorite analytics that always just kind of puts higher education specifically in place is I think it was U.S. Census um, released uh, some research on it in regards to, I think this was 2015, 2016 data. The age demographic of 18 to 29, 65% of them play a video game. And that's not defined by gender, heritage, race, discipline at all. It's 65% across the board. That means if you play Pokemon Go, you're a gamer because you are. If you play Candy Crush, you're a gamer in a way. You're just a fan of that specific game, but you're a gamer. And it's something to relate to somebody else that plays that game. No different than Overwatch League, NBA 2K, Madden, and so forth. So having that, that knowledge um, for me means that once you create the opportunity and a little bit of infrastructure that's where it makes sense to apply the phrase, if you build it, they will come. Now, if you build it, they will come does not work at the highest tier though. It doesn't work like saying, oh, look at me, I'm the NBA. Everyone's gonna care about what I do, so we're gonna go into esports. And that's not a knock on the NBA, that's part of the struggle of trying to reach a slightly or a massively different audience that plays a game that resembles the NBA's version of, the, of basketball. So you still have a generation or, or a demographic that isn't now is no longer defined by purely the gender uh, stereotype or analytics or being able to be seven foot tall or four foot tall or, you know, being um, African-American descent or being uh, Native American descent. You know, none of that matters in esports. And that's kind of the beauty of it and this inclusivity. But um, that made it really easy to find not only a community base, but also a leadership infrastructure that says, 
oh, I get it. Like I've been waiting for these opportunities and I see it because a lot of gamers and a lot of students in this, in this demographic, especially now being in the meat of Gen Z is they, they at the very least watch streamers as part of their routine when they, when they focus on playing a game. So if they're watching a streamer, maybe they're sharing their own clips. So that's the birth of them being a streamer in the first place. They're opening up themselves to being exposed, even if it's in their closed networks, but they get that social satisfaction from that because they're reaching out to somebody else. That's not just inside of their, their computer space and whatnot and saying, look at this amazing play I just did in Overwatch. And that's the birth of creating a streamer energy because then it's like, wait a minute, I'm really, I'm kind of, I'm proud of this moment. My friends, you know, that, that felt good. Let's take this to the next level in streaming. And it's so easy to do. You get a webcam, and you're pretty much done. <laughs> I mean, right. that's, that's all the hardware you need to start out. Sure, the production value can grow from there, but that's the bare minimums. And every laptop has one and webcams, at least prior to COVID, were decently inexpensive. <laughs> and so you could start in that energy. But then we start talking about, well, how do you be a good streamer? You know, and how do we, how do we actually develop that skill set? And part of it is experience, but the other part can be massaged and matured and, and taught. So um, that was just one aspect. The other one is that we have plenty of people inside of gaming communities that are absolutely not what we think in the stereotypes. You know, they're lazy. They don't do anything. They don't care about anybody else when they're the exact opposite of that. And they are absolutely willing to support somebody of influence that they follow's mission, whether it's to raise money for COVID or reach out to at-risk youth, like extra life uh, um, fundraisers every fall. Um, and, and they absolutely invest in those things, which makes them no different than any other demographic you can throw in, into the mix. They're just catering it to this specific pipeline, but it's still the same end result. We're raising funds for kids. We're raising funds for relief in our own communities. Remove the word video game and gamer, and it's no different than somebody else. No different in any way absolutely. that's supporting. And so that's, that's been the hardest journey is educating people that this world and that world, yes, there's some oddities in how they interact and how you reach them, but the spirit behind them is often very much familiar to anybody, regardless of the generational gaps. Fantastic. Okay. Now I want to pull back for a moment, if I can talk a little bit more about you. Um, you were mentioning, you know, the, the skills that you can learn to be a good streamer. What skills do you have that make you accomplished at your position? How did, how did you learn to do all this? <laughs> uh, so I have a, I have an undergrad in IT and then also a master's uh, business administration. So educationally, uh, an MBA aligns with this very, very well. Um, also being a um, photographer of 18 years that I've shot as a hobby, as a creative outlet, and also as a business shooting weddings for eight years and um, doing anything from automotive work to production work to um, anything like that in between under helped me understand the marketing aspects of, of being your own boss, an entrepreneur in general. How do I do a startup? How do I make myself marketable? How do I draw income? How do I either replace my primary income or supplement it very well to to be worthy of the investment that I'm making in hardware and time. So that, that helped me on the media side, which again, I feel is one of the most important components to esports, um, because even if your teams are lacking in ability, if the production's really high, people are still engaged. So that helped me in that energies. Also understanding that, um, you know, during the time of my military experience, and I'm a third generation uh, army service member, and my grandfather being in World War II, and my father being, um, an officer in the military during Vietnam, as a logistics officer, also really groomed me about understanding how to control both macro and micro uh, logistics heavily in our own household. You know, the way that we operated the house was very um, structured, to say the least. And uh, that absolutely helped uh, install quite a bit of uh, foundation in me into governance. But the one biggest takeaway 
of the thing that that's really groomed me to speak not only as an advocate for this audience and this demographic, but also as, as my own interest is World of Warcraft. And for those that are now saying like, what? Um, what I mean by that is so I was extremely introverted prior to World of Warcraft and I played vanilla through Cataclysm um, pretty heavily as a guild master and raid leader. And at the time, you know, even then and even now, you know, that stuff just would not translate to the general audience is like, well, you're just a nerd playing video games for 40 plus hours a week. And uh, the reality is, is that inside of those guilds, which are more than 50 to 100 plus people, you had so many variations in demographic, whether it was the stay at home mother or the oil and gas engineer, you know, being in Oklahoma or somebody who's actually an executive or the extremely energetic 16 year old that has his parents permission um, to be in, involved in this guild. And it, it, it really taught me um, one, how to deal with uh, an amazing skill set that we absolutely need. And almost everybody now today is how to, to manage people remotely. And for those that are uninitiated in the world of Warcraft universe uh, in the early days, you would have very high intense events where 40 people would have to be coordinated, coordinated in real time. Well, name another scenario in your life where you have to coordinate 40 people in a matter of seconds or milliseconds into, react, into reacting to accomplish a goal. You can, again, spin that however you want, but remove the game element from that, and that's globalized leadership training. That is legitimately what that is, and it's extremely high stress. And I took that to heart because so many of us spend, you know, we, we look forward to that weekend. We look forward to after work to have our golf time to have our, our separation, our, our ability to just take care of our own mental health. And this served as that. And yeah, there was work involved in it, but at the same point, now you're building a community again, a digital community um, that maybe you're just in a remote location or maybe you are extremely introverted and this still gives you that satisfaction of getting some of the social needs that, you, that we all have. Even for the introverted people, still have social needs, they just have them different. And so this catered to that, but it really taught me and really kind of, honed the foundation of my own leadership style and leadership infrastructure, but also understanding how to call upon a very dynamic and diverse pool in a very high stress environment while still maintaining good diplomacy and customer service skills uh, to bring, um, to bring a very high intensity task to life and complete it successfully, which then resulted in pride and uh, feeling as a part of a community and feeling um, catered to in that way. So that, coupled with everything that I've done professionally and in my, in a whole, in my own hobbies is world of Warcraft that really turned the tides in for me being less introverted and more extroverted. I genuinely appreciate that. And you and I have actually talked about this a bit. Right. Um, I'm in full agreement. And that's actually what I wrote my book on is my experiences playing world of Warcraft and all the business lessons I learned from right. it and all the, the skills and the, I was horribly introverted, just like you horribly. I like to talk on a phone, like, <laughs> Whoa. Can I text you? Like, Whoa. <laughs> my 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 uh, girlfriend at the time used to have to drag me by the arm to leave the house, and uh, there was plenty of times where I just shut down and bawled in the corner because I just had my own social anxiety issues. And again, people might people that are again not initiated may kind of snicker at that, but though that's it. Like that that was the world that that uh, who I came to be at that point. That's who I was. And so World of Warcraft let me get rid of the social anxiety part of it. And the beauty of it, the beauty of it to make it even more relatable to a general audience is that that guild, um, some, some members started to, uh, to date and court each other inside of that to the point where they actually brought it to full marriage and are still married today. This is over a decade ago now. 
And when we reference one, uh, one couple who I married in game, and then I got the ability to go and, and actually marry them in person. And so the entire guild flew to Oklahoma City, and I called it a wow BQ. And I met um, some amazing people that I still talk to today, even landed me a job at AMD in Austin right before Intel dropped Core 2, or the Core series, which completely decimated AMD until Ryzen. And, uh, but it landed me a job in, in an industry that another brand that I absolutely admired. And this photo that I have, um, which I don't have on me, uh, the beauty of it is organically who's in this photo. I have so many different uh, heritage representation and so many different professional tracks representation. And at that point, it no longer became about the game. It was just the, it was just the glue that, and the, the opportunity to, to meet people. But at the end of the day, these were people that I could hug shake hands to not listen to their voice through ventrilo or team speak but talk to them face to face break bread with them at a table and i'll never forget that but that was literally most of one of the most defining moments of of the transference of setting me up for the stage of being a voice for a demographic that's often still misunderstood that is so incredible that's wonderful all right so talking a little bit more about you still so you've been you've been doing this program at ou for about four years now Right. So 2016 was when you about started. Right. Um, if you could go back in time and you could talk to little Mike, you know, four years ago, <laughs> um, and give him some advice in order to like 10x the amount of growth you've been able to do, what would you say? Slow down. Slow down. Um, so one of the one of the things that has taught me on this journey is patience. Um, and so if I had had that from the get go, I think that I would have been I would be further along um, because I scaled up so fast. Uh, and for instance, like most universities, um, for whatever reason or another, don't wear the university logo on their chest. They wear a new brand, a new logo or something like this because it completely skirts the energy of, of dealing with um, licensing and branding from the university standpoint as they try to wrap their head around it. I was very fortunate at OU to have this conversation come very easily and very organically in that way. Now, the problem with that, the double-edged sword of it is, yes, I am wearing an officially University of Oklahoma licensed jersey for esports, which is not part of athletics, which is insane for a power five. But the other side of it is that it automatically looks very formal. So that also means that people think that I'm further along than I am. And so we are not a fully university-sanctioned development. Um, we are considered probably the highest form of and the, the most hyperactive development inside of student organizations um, develop strategic initiative and development and it's starting to spawn other partnerships, you know, whether it be recruitment energies or career service energies or, or even academic tie-in opportunities, but that's not here yet. I can't do a press release that say we partnered with this college yet or anything that this is just starting three and a half years after the fact where I see a lot of my um, peers at universities in the division two, three and NAIA smaller schools having further acceptance and endorsement levels because they're more agile and they're more um, they're just not as as big as a university like OU or any of the other power fives. And so my biggest thing that I would tell myself is to slow down. And uh, we did a really good job about strategically being deliberate and objective oriented. However, it was, I felt that it was a little bit so polished and so well thought out that people think that we don't need help. <laughs> and the reality is, it's like one of my favorite things, and I definitely have no problem sharing it now, is that for the three and a half year, four, almost four year duration of development, despite the OU logo on our chest, we have only consumed about $7,700 of OU's money. Wow. $7,700 to develop the biggest student organization on campus that represents itself for scholarship opportunities, still developing academic curriculum, 
is absolutely gaining interest from students and markets that we don't typically recruit from. In fact, I had a student from Maryland just reach out last week that wants to come and help us start at Fortnite Energies now that there's infrastructure for collegiate and K through 12. I've had students from California, again, not another market that OU looks to recruit from, reach out and said, I want to be a member of the Overwatch team. What, you know, what can we go? And so these are conversations that now universities, not just OU, but universities have to consider because it's drawing an audience that we don't have to go seek. And so you build a, a robust and well thought out organization that provides multiple opportunities and you're no longer just fighting for a nine slot roster in Overwatch. Now you can be the face of production for this brand and this energy. Now you can be the voice of the, of the journalist that's doing event coverage and, and writing articles and opinion pieces about things that just you care about uh, or doing hardware reviews. Um, or to the point where you're doing philanthropy work and, and raising funds and or engaging the students uh, and your peers and even the surrounding areas. And so there's so many other opportunities. So I, I reference, uh, you know, 1100 plus or yeah, 1100, 1300 plus actually. Actually, I forget. It's 1100 plus. We'll just go safe number. 1100 plus members in, in, in our community. And inside of that 1100, over 125 are involved in each of those additional developments. So 1100 represents the community at a macro view. 125 plus represents the people that are actually on the teams, being a shoutcaster, being a streamer, being a journalist, doing event coordination or leading the charge at the highest tier. That is a ton of opportunity. And each one of those could be a partnership with the College of Business, could be a partnership with the College of Law, could be a partnership with the College of Journalism. And so we're staged for those conversations once they finally are valued in that context. But these, these students, regardless of that, at the very least, are still developing tangible skill sets that we can write letters of recommendation with an OU branded letterhead and say they actually did the work. And even then that in itself can hold its weight because it's again the brand that's saying they did this work and this is what we achieved. And here's a website full of, there's a media outlet that we've created that documents everything that they've ever been involved in. So that in itself allows us to be very marketable and very strong, even without getting to the point of offering scholarship or academic curriculum yet. That's absolutely wonderful what you have set up there. Now, I, I have a question. You know, there's competition between the universities, I understand, but sure. we're talking about the good of all gamers here. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for other universities or colleges looking to set up this sort of program? I and mean, maybe they're starting from scratch. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I definitely don't mind um, being a little bit uh, deliberate with is, is telling administrators that are approaching this from the from the context of, well, we can develop this as another anemone to come to the university. Well, you're right. That energy is correct. However, what energy is not correct is not listening to the students you're building it for and instead just following the lead of other universities. The University of Oklahoma is nothing like UCLA. Harvard is nothing like Texas Tech. So build a program that caters to the cultures on your own campus. Many, I see the trend in higher education very often of being, well, we're just going to wait to see what somebody else does and then follow suit and vice versa. Well, this is an opportunity for high innovation. And one of the things that uh, I went through nine interviews to work for OU, I wanted to be in higher education and I absolutely do. I believe in the mission of education in the context of creating the professionals of today and tomorrow. And in the topic of esports and collegiate development, we have the amazing foresight and opportunity that esports is not fully mainstream by the, by even the slightest yet in the U S obviously COVID is helping to elevate that further. But we have the foresight to develop those professionals that are absolutely already being needed, even more so. You know, now with virtual uh, interactions just like this, this is becoming the staple right now. And even after we return to whatever the new normal is, this will be a bigger chunk of those pie charts of how we interact with other people. 
just as a standard procedure. That's one thing for sure that will come out from all of this. So um, my biggest, my second, I guess my other biggest advice to, um, to other universities is don't forget the purpose of higher education. And I hate to, to talk about this in this way, but what I see is, again, a lot of universities focusing on just this jersey. And this jersey and this opportunity to represent the university is a moment of pride. It absolutely is, and it should be, and it is a good, powerful recruitment tool. However, it is very narrow-sighted and one-track, single-dimensional to think of that way when we have these degree plans that can be modernized and evolved to cater to the specific industry that is absolutely and analytically proven to be growing at a fire, you know, at a wildfire rate. And so these, uh, these are all opportunities that I feel the bulk, not all, but the bulk of higher education um, is missing the opportunity in. And the fact that, again, that I have students that are reaching out to us in markets that we do not cater to is a good indication that there's opportunity here. So wait till you actually put some brand power and marketing power behind reaching an audience that we don't typically reach out to. It brings an entire new demographic to, to a university campus that you may not reach. Plus, now you have an international market that you can even do even more international, especially when we're talking about the Asian countries in this topic. You know, China and Korea specifically, massive opportunities um, because we know that a lot of those students already are coming into the U.S. using esports and, and these energies as a means to pay for their school. And that already exists um, on the West Coast some. And uh, the stuff that I can't, you know, I can't draw being in Oklahoma, just being who we are and what our specialities are in our landscape. But these are still things that we can etch away at. And these are other things to still diversify and, and find new revenue streams and new, new opportunities to think outside of the box of just student engagement. Student engagement being very important, but how do we retain students' attention? How do we draw a steady stream of, of future alumni? And that's, that's the, one of the biggest things. We talk about the business model of higher education. It's those alumni that 10 years after the fact say, I appreciate the opportunities that subscribing to your brand's um, method of delivering education and experience and networking has resulted in, in my life. That's how you build strong alumni. You don't do, you can't just sit on, on the heels of doing the same thing all the time because at that point, your peers are going to outscale you. Who's going to lead the charge first? So yeah, there's some risks involved in it, especially three years ago, there was some risks involved in it because it was so new and very rare. Um, but even in the context of, of Power 5 specifically, Power 5 universities, there's less than probably three or four that are endorsing esports at any level. And that's, those are the brands that everybody knows. So all of these brands that don't typically have the national um, awareness, the national uh, uh, exposure, they're lacking. And so while they may not, while these smaller, the smaller universities or the, the, the lower classified universities are, uh, might be capitalizing on the topic, they're now expanding their brand. And for an audience that again, 65% plays video games, they're already speaking to that audience. You're not. So um, that's another thing. So listen to the students because they're the ones you're developing it for. Yes, you need guidance from other universities. Yes, you should do due diligence to look at a macro view of opportunity, but don't settle just on recruitment. Recruitment is, is such a, tw a last year kind of thing. It's, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't approach collegiate esports development from the context of, oh, we have esports, you should come to our university. The, con the, the message should be, we have built this program of, multi of a multitude of opportunities and through our business relations, we're, we're now tying into academic curriculum. We're now tying into opportunities for scholarship. We're now tying into to career placement opportunities so that we can take care of everything. If you love this industry and you wanna be in it from start to finish, not just use it as a means to go to school. Use it as a means to go to school is okay, but um, 
it's again, narrow-sided to the true power of what higher education should be doing. Certainly. And there's just so much potential, like you said. All right. So where do you think it's all going to go in five years? Where's the industry heading? Ooh. Um, on the collegiate, on the collegiate landscape, one of the things that, uh, that I always convey, um, and people, especially, you know, being OU culture, you know, football is a big deal for us and athletics in general. And we can, you know, we can attribute the NFL and the birth of, of professional football to two universities coming together on uh, on a campus and just kind of saying, come watch. That was the birth in a collegiate environment. Well, in esports, that's not the case. Collegiate has been left behind. Higher education was left behind because just like we saw with YouTube kind of challenging the cable industry and, and Hulu and Netflix, they said, we have this cool idea. You should help us expand it. And the cable, the cable industry was like, no, we're the big dogs. We call the shots. And then we saw what happened. You know, who, who in the newer generations pays for cable in the higher percentage? Nobody. It's just not, not or a small percentage. The only reason they may have cable is because it's provided them for free as an anonymity to an apartment or, or something, or maybe they're, they're still, you know, with family and their family subscribes to service. So the, you know, that mentality has to change. So that, that means that those industries have to evolve. Now, again, the beauty of it is that sports entertainment to me, um, or I call it analog sports, no offense, but it's analog sports. Uh, and now in a very heavy digital wrapper nowadays, but it's still analog sports, physical contact and so forth. And I played, so as a defense mechanism, I played soccer in all state for 12 years in Oklahoma as well. And, and uh, so I have that also another unique thing um, in, in perspective. But that same business model in sports entertainment can almost be copied and pasted here. The only real difference is, is yeah, the demographic that we have to cater to with gaming and esports is slightly different, and they have different initiators and different uh, different ways of reaching them. But the end result is once you have their attention, the rest of it is pretty much automatic. Like the workflows are already there. How do you cater to them? How do you incentivize viewership and so forth? The other big difference, the main huge difference between it is the NBA and the NFL don't own the basketball and football. They only sell you a version of the two. In esports, Overwatch is owned by Blizzard Activision. You know, League of Legends is owned by Riot Games. So now you have an intermediary because it's not open source um, in the context of basketball and football. So that requires a little extra legwork in the business operations. But, you know, I always put it, you know, there's always ways to, to, to draw parallels. And one of them is that, Gannett, yeah, I'm wearing a physical jersey with an OU logo on it but why aren't we having conversations with Blizzard about doing a skin with an OU jersey on it inside of Overwatch? Is it not any different than going to the store and buying a jersey to put on your back? Which they'll do too, if you cater to it. So these are all business opportunities that aren't far departures from how we execute sponsorships and partnership deals already that just are not being, uh, at least if they're not, if they are being worked on, they're just not done yet. But these are absolute opportunities for additional revenue streams. The one other bigger departure is exclusivity to broadcast rights. You know, if you if you broadcast an NFL Super Bowl without the per express permission of the NFL National Football Association, then you're due to fines and and you know so forth. That's fair. That's how they make their money. That's their model. But again, we're coming into all of our industries are coming into esports, which has been a very grassroots energy up until lately, where things like Twitch exist, and YouTube, and you know Facebook Live, and and Mixer, and so now you have a secondary. Uh, intermediate, you know, have an additional media intermediary. So now you have another broadcast cable network in the traditional sense that has a different model of execution, but it's still a cable provider or at least a, a media outlet in that way. Then you have the IP holder. So yeah, there's some more, there's some more red tape to get involved, but so maybe the model of 
having exclusive rights can still be applied. It's just exclusively on Twitch or exclusively on Mixer. And we've seen that's already happened. It just needs to be elevated more. But then the things like when you ever attend a traditional, um, uh, traditional game, you know, football, basketball or whatever, you know, all those things that happen during a timeout, all those things that happen at halftime, whether it's the halftime show or if you go to a basketball game and they do like the local newspaper, the local cable provider says, here's so-and-so and they're going to do a free throw. And if they make it, they're going to get free cable for a year. Those are the things that need to be elevated more because that speaks to the audience more in this demographic where you don't have the physical engagement. So maybe you use it as a touch point to engage uh, that lurker demographic that actually I think makes up the bigger percentage of this community in general. The people that oh, follow yeah. the streams, they're absolutely immersed in consuming the content, but they have no desire to be interactive. They have no desire. They're getting what they need already. And sure, they're watching the trolls and chat channels and, and the interesting conversations that are happening. But maybe you, you, again, really fixate on it for the bigger brands. You fixate on it in a means to say, well, here's a, here's a, here's a real-time opportunity for us to collect analytics and still get our apparel and still get our brand on the backs um, and build advocacy through what we already do very well. It's just wrapped in a different skin. That's it. That is so, so great. Um, I think, uh, I think the, the modernization of business models um, is one of the biggest ones we'll see standardized more uh, in the next five years. It has to, I mean, that's pretty much a no brainer, but on the academic mission side, um, I think in the next five years, it's no, it'll truly be no it's, It'll no longer be a conversation about having esports. It's a conversation about what are you doing with it? And what are you doing with it is already how I approached it from day one versus just saying, oh, we have esports, you know, great, but that doesn't tell me anything. And it only speaks to those that are also equally uninitiated. So you have people that are talking about esports that have not done the research into it and they're approaching it from a very corporate standpoint or a very business standpoint. And you can't do that to this demographic yet. There's not culture is not matured enough and groomed enough to cater to this because they haven't needed you this whole time. So you have to go, you have to become a gamer a little bit to go and be able to speak to this audience a little bit. You have to listen to the younger generations. You have to, to really kind of immerse yourself in it. And in the very beginning, you know, it's it really frustrating to try and convince people to care. And one of the, one of the, my favorite arguments was, well, why do we want to sit here and endorse students sitting on their butt for eight hours a day? And to which I clapped back and said, well, what do you do for eight hours a day? This is a VP. <laughs> You know, this is an executive level at, a, at an organization and it immediately quite in the room and it literally draw the, Oh snap. And I was like, <laughs> that don't mean that as a, as an offensive thing, but what's the difference? And if, if you value sports in any way, well then it even, it's even less okay that you just said that because not only are you sitting on your butt eight hours a day in your job and it's not that you're not being productive, but that's the physical state of what you're in. And then two, if you watch sports, you're also sitting on your butt for an extended period of time watching other people being physical. So if you really break that down, it kind of sounds silly, but that's not the point to be offensive. The point is, is that you guys are already endorsing this just in a different, and just the optics of it just look differently. But it's exactly the same thing that you love being able to draw energy and morale boosting that your local team or the team that you're supporter, your alma mater is doing well. And even if they're not doing well, you're still a good fan and not a, uh, a bandwagon fan um, and you support that brand and you support those things. You build that fan base. And it's not that uh, gamers won't, aren't willing to do that. They absolutely are. They're latching onto things like the Dallas fuel or the Houston outlaws or, or anything in overwatch or cloud nine or TSM and, and, and so forth. They absolutely 
love how those organizations are run and what they represent to them and the, and the legitimacy of the thing that they love, despite the rest of the world not understanding them. And they're absolutely investing in those things, whether it's subscription to Twitch streams or buying their apparel as a means to help draw funding, um, you know, or throwing Twitch bits or, or donations and things like this. They're absolutely doing it. But even in that sense, how is that any different than you supporting HBO in creating Game of Thrones? It's the same, it's the same mentality. It's the same actual business model in that you have somebody creating content for consumption and entertainment and you're supporting them with your 10 to $15 a month in subscription, whether that's HBO or, or Ninja on Twitch, it's the exact same thing and the thing that you're satisfying. And just explaining that to people a little bit further makes them say, okay, at the very least on the business side, I'm starting to understand why Gen Z will throw money at a Twitch streamer. Well, it's a content creator that gives them a piece of the social need that we need, feeling a part of something and understanding that we want to see this continue because at the very least it is entertaining to me. I don't dictate what's entertaining to anybody else. I hope to create things that are entertaining for others and they subscribe to it, but it's not going to, it's not going to make everybody happy. And those that do make happy will absolutely invest in it because they want it to continue and continue and continue and continue for as long as they do and then have a voice inside of it. So that's why you build that community from a grassroots grassroots standpoint and listen to the audience that you're building it for instead of just approaching it about what other universities are doing. And um, from the context of business operations purely without at least listening and seeing the landscape of, of grassroots energy that pre-exists. For sure. I'm, I'm definitely looking for this industry to come into its own. Like it's, it's really just going to take off once it finally does. Okay. So talk about you a little bit for another minute here, because you've talked about all of the incredible things that you've done for OU and before that, and, and you've had this wonderful life. And I don't want everybody to think it was sunshine and rainbows the whole oh, way. <laughs> because I, I genuinely believe that we learn the most from our failures, not necessarily Absolutely. from our successes. Absolutely. So could you please tell me what is something that you have failed at and what did you learn from it? So, um, I have definitely, uh, being kind of a small business owner um, with photography, there's been plenty of times I failed, whether my production wasn't good, my delivery timelines weren't good. You can imagine, granted this didn't happen to me, but this is always a nervous, and you can do any, any wedding photographer can speak to this, missing that first kiss. Um, and so you work, you know, that photo op of that energy and that, that first look down the aisle and things like this. And so that, that speaks to me in understanding how to be preventative in, in failure, however, this journey in esports for any collegiate developer is a symphony, an orchestra of failure and success, and often more failure than success because, again, we're trying to educate administrators and we're trying to educate a culture on both spectrums, not just the game, not just the administration of the university, but also the gamers about elevating their thought processes about doing more because culturally they've been told that you'll never have a career in this and that this is a waste of your time. Does it stop you? No. But at least mentally think about it from a small a, a differentiation and standpoint that understands that you are actually developing some marketable skill sets. They just need to be developed further. You already have the foundation, just need to care about it in a different context. So every day, um, I can't think of a day where there's not riddled with at least one failure. And this can be from the sake of a marketing campaign not going off and, and attendance to an event being lower to talking to administration and missing the mark or not getting the point across to the point of getting elevated and endorsed further, which also means that I'm failing my students and in, in promises and hopes of what I tried to execute from day one, which only makes me drive and my resolve harder and, and, and more intentional and more well thought out the next time. And so it's been a cons consistent growth in, um, in myself, 
but also in the students that are at the tip of the sword in leadership. Um, I was very fortunate in finding a very diverse and very strong candidate pool when I first started and, and founded the organization. And only one of them is left now. They all graduated uh, the last out of the eight. Uh, and uh, she's the president of the organization. So I'm, I'm glad to have her for one more year as, as the last piece of, of the founding infrastructure that we put in place. But even them, they, um, the successes that I draw as a byproduct of the failures is that I'm only one person. And this is very much an entrepreneurial venture. This is a business startup with inside of a business startup where even the own business that I'm inside starting up in is also not my true advocate yet and not a true supporter of me. Then I still have the general population about why do I care about this? And then I still have the gamer demographic in regards to thinking a bit bigger and, and more in intentional. So I'm not only just selling to one audience, I'm selling to at least three. And that in itself has unique different ways of talking to it. You know, whether it's an alumni that wants to invest in OU students and sees the opportunity or a student and trying to inspire them to be more because they're capable or administration and saying that, Hey, our peers at other universities are leapfrogging us in this topic. We need to start accelerating some, or you're going to miss an opportunity, especially with what's happening right now. So all of those have been equal failures and successes and the amount of failures in numbers is considerably higher than the amount of successes. However, um, unlike traditional norms in regards to societal standards, when you see a failure or something bad, it often gets highlighted versus doing something really good and it often being brushed under the ground because, oh, it's all, everything's rainbow and sunshines. Oh my God, can you believe that failure that just happened? That's crazy. I, I, um, I have uh, mentored my students and my leadership to say, you're going to fail and it's okay. You're supposed to fail in college. You're supposed to fail as the younger you are, you're supposed to fail more so that when you are on your own and you have a family to support um, or you're in, in the seats of, of other people depending on you, that when you do fail, because it'll still happen, that you bounce back quicker or you can at least prevent it or minimize it and do uh, damage control well before it needs to. And for the most part, that's worked in our favor. Um, students, you know, have been preventative in, in calling things out, um, even to the point where, our discord is is managed and regulated that if somebody comes in with a questionable username that they're immediately messaged and say hey guys we're going to kick you like being professional about it saying we're going to remove you from the server because of your name if you want to be a part of this community please change your handle and then come back do they come back not all but at the same point it sets the precedence of elevating the thought process of the culture that we're trying to groom as the professional and higher awareness um, gaming and esports communities. Because anyone that's played Overwatch understands that voice communications inside of games like Overwatch are extremely toxic. And that also means that this is our opportunity to impact the culture on the, on the gamer, the, the audience we're trying to build it side. There's no need to get frustrated, at least to the point where you're malicious and in, in towards the other person. You can be frustrated. Who doesn't cuss in, a, in, a, in, you know, in the finale of a football game that doesn't go your way? Who's not in tears or crying or frustrated because your team dropped the ball, um, you know, and just didn't, didn't execute in any sport. That's no different. I don't want to, I don't want to stifle that. That gives us the human component to this, but what we don't need is a machine gun of F bombs or blatant disregard for people's um, uh, personal space or, or um, what they value and care about. You know, one of the things that I, I have learned too is uh, as one of the successes as a byproduct of failure is the art of communication is actually, Help me understand how to, and I don't do it well, but I've gotten so much better since the beginning, is how to bridge the gap between generations. 
because again, being millennial and the first kind of the first wave of millennial, we grew up analog and then mature digital. Gen Z was born into it. You know, they were born digital. So they didn't know, you know, about communications prior to, to never mind Snapchat and social media, Instagram and, and so forth. But they didn't even know, you know, that SMS and, you know, MMS type text messaging was so progressive and that, and that crazy. And even broadband internet in the late 90s, mid 90s. So um, there has been failure and I've learned to understand um, as what I teach my students and, and anyone that uh, listens is that failure is just a process to success period. And if you do not embrace um, failure period and understand that it is part of the workflow to success, then you've already failed and you can't recover because you are going to, you're just going to, it's an inevitable path, no matter what you do. Even if the fail is minute, it's still a failure. If it's catastrophic, the point is, is to kind of minimize it so that you don't have catastrophic failures. A series of small failures on the path to success is still a very successful path to the actual um, finale of being what you define, what you define or determine um, success to be. And uh, that's, uh, that's one of the things that I, I really, really emphasize in my, in my students and, and really anybody that I come across that's, that's starting in these industries or an entrepreneur in general is failure isn't a negative. Failure is actually a positive because it's going to teach you real quick what doesn't work. That's right. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. Yep. Okay. This has been absolutely wonderful, Mike. How do people find you? How do they get in touch with you? Um, so you can find me pretty much on any social media network at Moog Diesel, uh, M-O-O-G-D-I-E-S-E-L funny story, but we won't go there. Um, but uh, also SoonerEsports.org is our media outlet. So SoonerEsports, one word.org. And um, any of the articles I produce, all of our leadership infrastructure and how to contact them is there. Uh, and so I'm always an open book. Um, I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn, which I do a lot of conversations with as well. Um, but I don't care if you're a student, if you're in high school, if you're in a university, I don't care if you're at uh, a, a rival of the OU brand. I don't care if you're in the pro sector, consumer sector, grassroots sector. I don't care what you represent. The topic of esports is bigger than any single individual. It's bigger than any single university. It's bigger than any single esports organization. And that's because of who it caters to, which is also everybody. And I referenced this story um, as kind of my send off, but um, one, of the, one of the things that truly inspired me um, in my research phases during the time when Blizzard was really still emphasizing Hearthstone development um, and esports in general, uh, I watched a student from Arizona State decimate Ohio State from his wheelchair with only the use of his right hand. And to think about that in the context of being able to wear their brand proudly on their chest and still have a rivalry with a, with a university of similar caliber and win scholarship money for it if you've never been an athlete or if you have been an athlete, then you understand that rivalry, that accomplishment, that towering over, um, you know, in skill set, just outmatch somebody as well as a little bit of luck too and determination and mental acuity, all of that played into that. But the point was, is that the fact that he's in a wheelchair and only had the use of his right hand doesn't matter. And that's the true power of why this is bigger than any single thing. It's bigger than this is a global opportunity it is not defined by gender. It's not defined by any of these things. If you want it bad enough, go do it. And it doesn't matter if you want to be on a pro sector you know, team or if you want to be the face of a brand on a shoutcaster or a journalist, you can go do that. And again, not defined by any of the traditional things that we see in sports. It's not a male-only esport. It's not a female-only esport. Those things do exist, 
but they don't have to, and we don't have to create those things. Um, they can just be esports, not male esports, female esports, uh, female League of Legends team, and male female, uh, male Overwatch team, and so forth. Those things don't have to exist, and that's the beauty of it, especially in the context of education, regardless of higher education or um, K through 12 or anything. It is a level playing field. It can be a level playing field, even with the political landscapes of, of analytics in regards to um, gender equality in, in almost any topic. But that's also a part of what we're trying to do in regards to saying the fact that they're a gamer is the most important thing. The fact that they have the energy is the most important thing. The fact that they are Buddhist, Catholic, or of any kind of non-denomination or, or anything like that is irrelevant. The fact that they're in a wheelchair or seven feet tall is irrelevant. The fact that they may be uh, not dealt the cards of having athletic physique is irrelevant. And that is the great nullifier and balancer with this topic and why anybody who has a child or a peer that hasn't been dealt those cards or doesn't have those passions and things still finds their social need taken care of through things like this. I bet their mental health is still better than, than those that aren't because they're getting their social needs satisfied at a much more constant rate, despite being introverted and lacking the ability to socially interact face-to-face, they're still getting what they need. Whereas, especially in this landscape with COVID and being isolated more than not right now, still, the more extroverted and the more, um, the more that don't understand this are struggling. So true. And it's so wonderful. All right, Mike, um, is there anything, any last things you want to discuss or any questions I didn't ask you think we still need to cover? No, um, you know, this is, these are things like people like you and I can talk about forever, even outside of the context of what I do and what you do, just our own experiences and games. Uh, I always, uh, <laughs> one joke I always make is in the early days, I always asked when people were like, uh, what is esports and gaming? It's like, and then they were trying to combat me in regards to the arguments. And I was like, well, where were you when the Lich King fell? <laughs> you know, where were you in your life? And they, they don't even know what I'm talking about. I was like, this is why it's a problem, guys. This is why you have to listen to that audience. Um, and, and so forth. Because again, millennial generations, we are the perfect translator between both sides. It just requires some effort to finally tap into that analog's uh, earlier part of our life and then tap into that digital part of our maturity. And that allows us to bridge the gap. So it's perfect that esports is elevating um, with us in at least the age group and, and the career paths of uh, being able to influence and impact and share and develop. So other than that, thank you for having me on this. Um, it's always a wonderful thing to talk about it, especially when um, it's someone that's going to ask me questions that I haven't been asked before. So I appreciate you letting me share some of my backstory, which really kind of paints the picture that, yeah, I get it. Like, I'm not just some guy with an MBA that plays games. No, I, I live that culture. I was introverted. Of course, anytime. Well, Michael, Michael Aguilar, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you so much. All right. Gamerpreneurs, I'm going to remind you all, don't be just a gamer, be a gamerpreneur.